0: those histories of people that don't fit into that model minority upward progression story have to be kind of edited out in order for that story to work.
1: Welcome to Surviving Society
2: with Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis,
1: executively produced by Georgia Forey Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
2: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating... And reviewing. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics?
1: You should be if you're listening to Surviving Society.
2: Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture.
1: It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all.
2: Find a link to Red Pepper Magazine in the episode notes
1: welcome to another episode of surviving society we are really excited today to be joined by ben gidley who is senior lecturer at birkbeck in psychosocial studies um, ben is also a board member of the international center for, for the study of race and racism at Edge Hill university um, ben is also a board member of monitor global intelligence
0: on racism on racism <laughs>
1: also part of the European Sociology Association on Racism and Antisemitism. Ben is co-founder of Social Scientists Against the Hostile Environment and Ben's research interests include cities, diaspora, diversity and racism. It's really exciting for us to have Ben on the show because Ben's research areas, we've we've talked we've actually spoken about your work a number of times actually on <laughs> the show with other guests, other collaborators, other admirers of your work but your work particularly on antisemitism, on racisms on cities and diaspora more broadly are things that we we do tend to talk about a lot on the show so it is really good to have you here as an expert in the field just to help us yeah really understand um histories and how it relates to the contemporary moment particularly thinking about um race racialization and class so as admirers of yours ben we wanted to sort of begin the show by talking a little bit about your intellectual project and trajectory so i guess we wanted to sort of f- first of all start by introducing the listeners to what your phd research was on which you did at goldsmiths like me <laughs> when did you finish your phd
0: <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not actually sure of the date. It was like early 2000s. Early 2000s.
1: Early two decades. Yeah. At Goldsmiths, and you did it on the radical Jewish migrants in East London in the early 20th century, who we have spoken about before yeah. on the show. Yeah.
2: Anti Alien Act, like you might know Five and all that. Yeah, yeah.
1: It would be really good to just tell the listeners a bit about how you became an academic and the sort of sc- scholarly trajectory in terms of what you've studied.
0: Oh, thanks very much. It's great to be here, and that's a nice question to start with. My first attempt at university when I was 18 was uh, philosophy, and that didn't go very well, so I dropped out and started again a few years later at Goldsmiths um, doing anthropology, and then I did an urban studies MA with um, Michael Keith and Paul Gilroy. It was a new MA at that time, and one of the essays I did was about East London. A couple of essays around East London, first about how sociologists represented East London historically, and another one about looking at Jewish radical history in comparison to British black radical movements a couple of uh, generations later. And talking to my MA supervisor, Michael Keith, I've decided to do a PhD on this topic. There's kind of a personal interest as well that my mother's family come from Eastern European Jewish background in America, New York. My grandparents were communists, and as communists, they didn't identify at all with their Jewish identity with religion, but also with ethnicity and race. And they saw Jewishness as something that would basically vanish in the kind of uh, new era of the proletarian revolution, that things like identities, like ethnic identities, would, would fade away. So they didn't identify as Jewish until quite late in their life when they moved to California and they weren't anymore surrounded by Jewish people. And they suddenly kind of did realize they were Jewish after all, which coincided with my teenage years, kind of discovering connecting with that history and so in some ways that my research which was about jewish radicals in london east london was also maybe exploring that my family history at one remove and that kind of issue of left-wing politics versus identity diasporic identity i suppose so the research was about east london first couple of decades of the 20th century periods when there had been A lot of migrants from eastern and central europe yiddish speaking moving into uh, the eastern edges beyond the walls of the city of london um working mainly in very informal labor very informal economic sectors the garment industry in particular also furniture making um Shoe making, that type of thing, working often for family members outside the mainstream organisations of the of the British left and labour movement, and there were a number of different ways of identifying that were open to them. In terms of class, the kind of proletarian, international proletariat, in terms of nationhood, the beginnings of the Zionist movement, diasporic identities, local identities in relation to the East End. And what I was interested in is how these different kind of spaces and sites and frames of identification related to each other um, as they mobilised politically, including against, as as you say, the Aliens Act, one of the first migration control Bits of migration control uh, legislation, and also in the First World War, a really significant but less well-known immigration legislation. There, where where for the first time, there was a, a very strongly racialized immigration regime. The state was given a lot of power to remove people, to detain people. Uh, Jewish East Londoners were categorised either as friendly aliens if they came from the Russian Empire or the Ottoman Empire or enemy aliens if they came from the Austro-Hungarian or Prussian <laughs> empire. And then what happened was a lot of say Polish Jews would say from the from the enemy side from the part of Poland that was in the Prussian or Austrian empire would say well we may be subjects of the you know Prussian empire but our nation is you know we're Polish we're Jewish we're not we're not Prussian. And so the category emerged enemy aliens of friendly races and so race which was how they understood it at the time this kind of language of racial racial nationhood inserted itself into kind of immigration control and the idea of being a national racial citizen rather than a subject of an empire um, became important i think that's in some ways the framework for the later ways in which imperial and post-imperial citizen migrants were dealt with in the in the second world war and the windrush period and the various you know commonwealth uh, various nationality acts in the post war period that reduced the the rights of uh, people from the British colonies and former British colonies on a kind of racial basis.
1: So interesting, it's isn't mad. it? It's so, it's and mad. it just obviously like we do know like bits of this history, but it's always really powerful and really important to have experts like Ben on the show <laughs> to remind us of how important this history is into understanding contemporary forms of racialization racism, bordering, etc. And also, for me, like it's important in terms of locating, surviving society as kind of a a Fanonian endeavor in mm. that, like when we're talking about, or when we're seeing antisemitism, when we're seeing p- the state or those in power talk about Jewish people or controlling Jewish people, we are also talking about other negatively racialized people mm. as well. We we're talking about black people, like mm. the famous quote of Franz Fanon. Like if he's talking about the Jew, he's also talking about the black. So I think that's also that's also really important in terms of thinking about these histories of solidarities but similarities in treatment and also how that maps onto the contemporary process of racialisation.
2: It's interesting when I hear you talking about like the identities available for ethnic minorities to use to identify themselves. So what do you mean by that?
0: So, so in the context of, of East London in the early 20th century, I think an idea, for example, that participating in the labour movement and the working class movement meant assimilating to the British, image of the worker was the British, the white British worker, um, on the other hand, there was the kind of call of of nationalism, national identity, Zionism, um, which was quite a, a marginal identity before 1917. Um, this kind of very strong sense of of sort of blood blood connection. But for many migrants in the East End, what they were more um, alive to were actual kind of um, either kinship relations or, or kind of hometown relations with people in Eastern Europe Yiddish speaking there, there was a very much more kind of concrete sense of solidarity in a, in a period when there were pogroms um, you know, anti anti-jewish riots in in, in Russia and um, Romania and other places so kind of much more kind of concrete identification with them this idea of kind of Yiddish culture which was um, a, a sort of distinct but non-national, Non-national culture, transnational culture, um, that that linked them to people a- across, you know, across Yiddish land, across the kind of dispersed non-national space.
2: When you have these identities that kind of mobilise and they move across spaces, how did the state seek to kind of accommodate those identities into kind of create a, co- a socially cohesive space? Like, for example, the East End.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. um I think what one thing that happened is that the. I suppose Satnam Verdi in his account of the different periods in which racialized outsiders have have initially been excluded from, for example, working class institutions and kind of fight their way in. Um, in the case, uh, in this period, I suppose the kind of municipal is the beginning of the periods of sort of municipal socialism, um, the struggle for. Municipal education, municipal, What's municipal
1: socialism, Ben. Just the listeners, oh, the kind
0: of local authority, the the borough council in London, uh, providing for the social needs of, of 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 local citizens, of working class people. So, this is the period of the beginning of social housing, um, board schools, which were like the beginning, the first sort of state schools um, in in kind of inner city, inner city areas. And there was i guess before the beginnings of the welfare state this web of kind of charitable settlement houses other kind of charitable institutions but for the first time working class people starting to organize themselves to create their own institutions sometimes kind of getting leverage through the local state through the municipality mm-hmm. to create uh, to kind of uh, serve the social needs of of communities and so jewish as well as Irish and other kind of migrants were part of that process and kind of found ways into, into the local state through, through the labour movement, in particular.
1: And in terms of thinking, like in this initial, the the early research that you did about how this related to, or was in comparison, sort of the black radical tradition what can you tell us a bit more about
0: that I suppose thinking about the overlapping struggles for on the one hand those kinds of social goods like the social housing so struggles for for social rights for the right to have the same social rights as as citizens the struggle for maybe cultural recognition and sense of 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 identity and then the struggle to create their own civic spaces spaces of citizenship i think those exact same kind of patterns played out in the early 20th century um for jewish migrants and for them and in the mid uh, mid 20th century uh, uh black british people from um you know former former imperial colonies and so you can see for example the same year of identity-based kind of nationalist politics in tension with maybe class um class-based solidarity for example
2: in this kind of process that's happening, does class kind of fade away and those the historic tropes that afflict these these groups or black people, Jews, they come to take precedence over class. So for example, even though we, there is a kind of urge for better working rights in the early 20th century and in the late 20th century for black and Jewish people, there's still Race seems to be the overriding principle, even though the Black Panthers are organising around Marxist principles. That is not what's taken from the, by the people or by outsiders. Race comes first. Class gets downplayed, even though these people are actively talking about class.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that in the early 20th century, there was less of a language around maybe racial mobilisation okay. um, than there was in the later period. So they were whereas they were kind of stigmatized through racialization, forms of racialization. The response was, there wasn't so much of a response on that basis. What there was, I suppose, was a more nationalist idea of Zionism. But in Britain, that was never as strong British Zionism as it kind of converted working. It was originally very much a middle class movement. In the interwar years, it became much more of a cross Communal movement, but it was always in those early decades, alongside kind of social democratic politics. It was never kind of like a very strong identitarian movement. Even though, for example, that the conspiracies that sit around uh, like ju- the Jewish
2: community, the conspiracies that would pop to mind are that Jews have lots of money, disregarding the kind of the whole kind of working class the Jewish movement. Yeah, the, the, actual, yeah, the yeah. Actual, actuality of being a Jewish immigrant, especially in the early 20th century in in London.
0: Yeah poor relatively poor community Mm -hmm. there was a lot of poverty there was also a lot of internal exploitation and yeah class divisions within Mm. within the community um as well as kind of exploitation outwards and i I suppose that the narrative of how that changed there's a very much a kind of there has been a sort of model minority narrative of like you know look they uh down and fitted in and integrated and, you know, as well as maybe they were entrepreneurial kind of racialized idea. And so it's been used as a kind of um, stick to kind of, you know, Yeah. Hmm. And that story, I guess it misses out the the way in which some people didn't, didn't, uh, didn't integrate in that sort of way that chose to kind of maintain a different, Different cultural traditions related maybe to you know Yiddish culture, or the way that some people didn't manage to kind of make it in the labour market, and often maybe stayed in the East End when other people moved out. Um, so that those histories of people that don't fit into that model minority upward progression story are, are have to be kind of edited out in order for that story to work.
1: And the state does it well, don't they? Like they they, they really do do it well. Like, and that's why we really try and make a point of um when we're talking about racial literacy in the broader sense on this show it's always about locating the actualities and that being the histories but also that like ethnic minorities whoever we're talking about whoever however they're racialized it's not just one experience it's not just one way of being like and it's a it's a broad history it's a multi-class history it's a multi-ethnic history
2: i was even thinking about this idea of integration though like does it even actually happen? Because when you look around, even just like uh, anecdotally of London, you have a Chinatown, you have Jewish synagogues, you have Hindu temples. Clearly, people have, have segregated into kind of little niches, little silos, and it's not because they're not because they they sit outside it; they are part of the community too. But this idea that you that these there's a, a, a kind of a flawless kind of assimilation, and that there's no kind of races that people have settled into discrete parts of London. And you see it all around London. But it enables,
1: it enables those in power or those that want to keep social orders in the way they are materially mm. to create a story, a, a straightforward story, which is one about winners and losers mm. and to actually generate stories that, that locate human experiences. In, their pu- in the purest sense and that being that they're complicated mm. and messy um, they're exploitative, they're loving, they're caring they're all these things at once mm. it doesn't serve the, pa- the those that are in power, the state for example, it doesn't mm. serve them so there's never going to be something that's prioritised I don't think, I don't mm. know, what do you think then?
0: Yeah, I guess it, um, one thing is, is how you define something like integration, so in the kind of mainstream discourse it's very much about cultural assimilation fitting in british values that sort of thing um in the european academic literature it would be much more about mutual interaction um rights and responsibilities um, uh kind of integration in the labor market integration in the housing market things that you can measure through things through the different outcomes different groups experience and in in that sense if you think of it in a much more multi-dimensional sense um we can see all sorts of different trajectories and within you know populations where some people might be might be maybe appearing to be living in a, a kind of parallel life if you focus on say cultural activity but flourishing within the kind of mainstream labor market at the same time and vice versa so yeah it's important to kind of Maybe push back against the kind of cultural assimilationist idea of of integration i suppose
1: Mm. and also like if we're thinking about just just quickly thinking about racial capitalism as well like one of the things we talk about on the show is how like those notions of cultural assimilation are used by our own people Mm. as as ways to kind of like reassert class divisions but also gain power so like we often obviously talk about Black Tories on the show. Mm. Oh, sorry. Mm. But like as in people that use like notions of meritocracy, notions of like uh, an authentic integration to gain materially at the expense of our people.
2: Mm. Sometimes do we not muddy or make things overly complicated uh, by putting terms of integration and, and all these words that explain uh, phenomena to us as academics, but this is just the everyday conviviality right we can we can talk about how governments exploit this and had had different groups but this is this has been a historical process right so monarchies have done the same um but as academics the language we're using is affecting the way these people behave on a day-to-day basis the epistemologies that we have make everyday living overly complicated when people just do what people do
0: yeah i completely i completely agree with you there's there's two things there i think uh, one is about the way in which academic languages and the way they translate sometimes into policy languages mm-hmm. um, are complicit in um, processes of exclusion or racialization. And so some of the ways in which um, you know some academics talk about integration um, uh, can be part of the problem for, for uh, kind of uh, for minority populations. And then second, as you say, they're just a the lived experience of conviviality the can messy mixed up, um, uh, complicated life in a place like London. And this has always been the case. It's not not just a feature of the of this, you know, super diversity period. It's always been a feature of a place like London that uh, people just find ways of, of, of getting on and finding their their niche people. Um, there's always spaces that kind of transgress the, the colour line or whatever the kind of um, dominant lines of exclusion are at a particular moment. And, yeah, the east end of London in the early 20th century really exemplifies that. You can see examples of, um, of uh, kind of very beneath the radar. Um, for example, um, when there were no halal butchers, Muslim people would use kosher butchers um, where spaces like I don't know gambling or um, horse racing where kind of you know fugitive kind of wayward members of the Jewish population would mix with wayward members of other populations it's mm-hmm. kind of there's always spaces and sites of conviviality and mixing that that kind of belie those those kind of categories that academics tend to use
1: I've got provocation guys there go. I love this stuff and I think it's really important and I t- especially think it's important that we have these kind of conversations during a time when reactionaries take advantage of like inventions of like a white nativist identity, etc. However, <laughs> as someone, as someone that grew up partly grew up on an estate in the Medway towns, yeah, a black kid with a working class white mother growing up in the estate. One of the things that I think sometimes we do on the left that doesn't necessarily take people with us is sometimes we do overly romanticise, I think, working-class relations, as in, in terms of thinking about sites of the estate or sites of housing. And I, I know Ben was on the show, uh, Ben's been on the show on our housing series talking about this. But one of the things, and again, we've spoken about this on the show before, but I think it's important to bring it up again. I'll give an example, after the... Um, after the renewed BLM um, movement in 2020, um, later that summer, we obviously had the far right come into um, uh, down Oxford Street. Mm. And I saw so much on social media talking about these people being sort of um, your working class white people from the States that are coming through to like assert their assert their their home like push back against blm in reality those of us that actually pay attention to who the far rights foot soldiers are a lot of them tend to be actually white middle class men but that's for another that's for another day but when you start trying to assert that fact it sometimes does take away or from the experiences of those of us that have grown up or experienced being a minority within these spaces and how actually hostile that can be um even though we know in order to for in order to form solidarities we need that material class analysis that brings us all together but of course there is working class racism and it's actually like a very felt and <laughs> pernicious and sometimes violent thing that happens but i do feel like sometimes we have to just do it it as people like as progressives or people on the left we do just have to kind of name check that sometimes Mm. whilst also locating those solidarities because we need those solidarities in order to push back against the reactionaries but i do feel like sometimes just telling people is not selling to people and actually taking people with us is about recognizing yeah like sometimes it is a bit of a madness like being a racial uh, being a minority in in a working class community
2: what's reflected from my experience in that kind of environment is that it's a very contradictory and messy process right so most of my mates i would say are racist but at the same time they will come to my house and they, they will listen to black music listen to black culture and at the same time speak very highly about black people or Asian people, whatever it will be, right? So it's a very kind of messy, and it's it's hard to kind of, I think as academics, we want to kind of have clear in lines of cause and effect, Yeah, but that's not how it is. And that's not how I was brought up in, into it. So at sometimes times, um, so, I guess one of the things we speak about quite a lot is how sometimes when you look back and you watch some of the films that you watch, you consume, and you look now and you're thinking, that's horrendous. I don't watch
1: films anymore. I literally can't watch films. I literally can't watch films. So, for example, um,
2: (laughs) you sit back and you'll watch something or something will come on TV and you think, I used to laugh at that. And not, I wasn't, I was genuinely laughing. I was entertained. But this film is clearly racist. And obviously we have a a temporal kind of shift. But I I, I sit back and think, as an adult, when I look at the adults in the room, they would have seen it. But they were laughing too so you think what well, it's not as straightforward as saying the nature of racism and class and all those things in those kind of working class communities it's a very kind of moving dynamic kind of process yeah. and it's hard for us as, as, as academics try and tease bits out and say this is this this is that
1: and this is where i think i sometimes clash with the marxists on this because obviously i do like agree that we've got a center power we've always got a center power we've always got into the material conditions but you're not going to take people with you if you're telling them it doesn't matter that someone spat on spat in my pram mm-hmm. um on the estate because it's about power do you know what i mean like that and that is actually something mm-hmm. that happened mm-hmm. like it's hard it's as you say to it's about that resisting that categorization but equally meeting people where they are and taking them with them to the Marxist utopia mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think I agree. I think that we've got to navigate between. On the one hand, there is definitely a class reductionist sort of idea that doesn't take those um, those sorts of lived experiences seriously, and that seems to have been growing again in um, in in recent years. And um, you know, you've had uh, Valerie on the show talking about um, about the kind of left left nationalism that kind of follows from that. And on the other hand, within some kind of academic context which talk about diversity and conviviality, there's been a maybe romanticised, celebratory version of it that misses out the kind of geometry of power and, and, and racism. And, and I think we need to kind of navigate between those. For me, the uh, you know, Les Bach's idea of the metropolitan paradox, the idea that the places of, of the most... Um, close forms of, of intimacy and contact and exchange are also the places of the most violent and brutal exclusion and and violence that kind of ambivalence is is a really good way of, that's of thinking that's such a
1: sick that. thing from les is it it's so true that's like that's yeah. what's like what i was just trying to say
2: but but even that right so just thinking about occupying in one of those metropolitan spaces the, i don't there is that violence but it's not I guess when when Les puts it in those kind of like kind of like uh, soundbite terms, you kind of feel like there's the ultra flashes of violence and it's not felt like that. It comes down to the center of power and understanding how the capitalist system works, right? The richer people in those metropolitan spaces don't live those kind of lives. Well, it
1: depends what you're defining as violence. I would say that some of the most violent people in the world work in banks in Canary Wharf. <laughs> and, and,
2: and, like, again, I, I, I think I, I kind of take your point. Again, mm. I, as I was walking through an area through Greenwich, they've put have posters for domestic abuse right mm-hmm. and which tends to be i guess from the stats around there in richer areas yeah, yeah, it's yeah. hidden right yeah. so again it's how you're defining rights but again yeah. it comes down to these ideas of who's defining what and, and this is as our work as, as academics it, kind of complicit in this
0: building up definitions and putting people in certain silos mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. and in relation to racism i think for educated people younger people um There's such a strong kind of norm against prejudice in our society. Obviously, nobody wants to be identified as racist. And so a lot of the research on racism that maybe uses things like, I don't know, attitudinal surveys, do you agree with this statement about Mm. this particular minority? There's some people know that the right answer is, you know, that's the racist answer, so I'm not going to say that. Um, And so that kind of class lines at which people absorb that, That kind of performance of Mm -hmm. of racism or not, so so those I think those ambivalences that, lesbac paradox is much stronger in perhaps working class sites of both both sides of that, and this relates I think to the tension between what people do and maybe the idea versus the ideas that they have that we were talking about in the housing episode. Mm -hmm. So, people can say non-racist or anti-racist things while doing racism and vice versa so methodologically that means you know for social researchers it's important to attend to the ethnographically to the to the doing as well as as well as to what people what people say and politically i think it means um maybe that we should always be there's a source for optimism in terms of practice but also you know pessimism in terms of the persistence of those attitudes
1: that's great then Powerful. Ben, you are one of the co-founders of Social Scientists Against Hostile Environment. Can you explain to the listeners what this group entails and why it um, was formed?
0: Sure. Yeah, there's a whole lot of us, so I won't name check everybody. But I guess Nira Yuval-Davis is the main instigator. Um, Speak up, Nira. Yeah, and she, along with a couple of other people, um, the founders were. fellows of the Academy of Social Sciences and were part of, I think, a, I don't know if it's called a special interest group on refugees and migration. And their perception was that in mainstream social science, issues around, firstly, the issues around migration just taken less seriously than uh, many other issues. And also that there's been a huge disconnect between the study of Migration and the study of race and racialization. Um, part of the reason for that, I think, is that the social movements that are associated with anti racism, that maybe have given birth to kind of critical um, ethnicity and race scholarship, have pushed back against the idea of black people as migrants. You know, that's mm-hmm. that. So the whole story of, you know, integration and so on is, is kind of the wrong story. And so there's there's been a maybe separation from. Uh, migration and refugee activism. Migration and refugee scholarship has often been kind of blind to issues of of racism and so a desire to kind of link those up intellectually to give them more prominence within social science and then in particular to kind of take seriously the responsibility that social scientists have to contribute to public debates around these issues at a time when the government has, you know, for a, a decade now, but with 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 deeper roots than just that decade, created a, a hostile environment for migrants. Um, and we see we have a kind of responsibility to, to bring the research, the evidence, um, critical lens that we have as social scientists onto that, onto that public debate and kind of try and help uh, promote a different narrative.
1: Yeah, that's so powerful, Ben, and I think that one of the things that we're always thinking about on this show is what can we do um, through our Dialogical Knowledge production, thank you very much, Patricia Hill Collins, but also through pursuing academic scholarship in a way that is creative and that tries to centre accessibility, what can we do in terms of educating people on how things like the hostile environment are written into policy, written into the everyday lives of people, but also written into society more broadly but it's always like one of the things that I find hard about this and I always say that we're we're a very small part very very small part of these movements for change or to the movements to protect the most marginalized within society i say we're a very small part is because i'm like how much more Do people need to know, or is it that I actually? Do you know what? And I'm already checking myself now. People still don't understand some of the basics of how these processes affect people's lives every day. So it is important to keep educating.
2: Do people care? Like it depends who you are and how and your proximity to these problems.
1: Question: I think for us as surviving society is can you make people care without having proximity to the realities of the violence of bordering of the hostile environment i
2: i think you can and i think it does happen whether it's for the kind of reasons we think are uh, correct so some people care because they feel stigmatized and shamed into it right mm. so i don't really want someone to care because they feel bad mm. and i think so what
1: it, can i do with I, guilt i can't do anything a, with guilt. and i think it
2: comes down to looking at Bauman's work the idea of toleration and indifference and so people can kind of feel like there's an indifference to the migrants' plight. So which can go, it can be, and that indifference can either be positive or negative. But
1: is that indifference because they don't know the detail?
2: Even if they knew the detail. What,
1: even when we, even if they don't know about like Yarlswood detention centres?
2: Right, so for example, in the press recently with that, with the, what's that tennis player's name? I can't, I can't uh, remember. Djokovic. That's the geezer's name. Boom. He probably understands or hears all the stuff about migrants all the time. But it wasn't until he got stopped and experienced being put in a detention center that it becomes an issue, right? If you're just to happen to be uh, racialized as white, a white man who's rich.
1: But is Djokovic racialized as a white man? I think that's another question as well. Depends where he is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depends Depends where where he is. is. But
2: in that particular case, how Nigel Farage became a defender of of the migrant? Quite interesting. The way
1: he just popped up. (laughs) The way he just popped up. It's like, who asked you?
0: Yeah, that uh, the Djokovic story is really interesting in the way in which he you know he'd spent a couple of days mm-hmm. in um yeah. I, I think they used the phrase refugee hotel and then it, you know the detention and he got his case was heard so quickly there are so many people that languish for months years waiting for decisions and uh, and yeah so I don't know if that cut through for anyone that 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 his experience of being of on the border is, is which just lasted a week or two is like the people are caught on the border, the you know, the border follows people for for months, years, but, decades.
2: But it was also interesting how he was treated. And so he said it was uh, it was they kind of spoke to him at like crazy times in the morning, like four AM and they said, We'll give you half an hour to make a decision to get documents. And he was saying what well, it was so aggressive and so unrealistic mm-hmm. But this is the normal experience of people, right?
1: Can you imagine if Djokovic now, after that experience, like does something with his platform But in terms of like bordering? He's not going to do it, is he? This is what I'm saying. right? Like, but it, So th-
2: this is what we're talking about. Like, how do you get people to care about this? So the nationalities and borders bill that's going through, and it's a big thing. But the people that you seek it Talking about are, are the usual suspects, right? In our,
1: eco, in our yeah, in the echo chamber. Chambers, but, yeah. but even if you just put
2: them on TV, just like, uh, an anecdotal sweep of it, it's the usual, it's the usual suspects
1: But to be fair, to be fair, T, um, mm. Ben, I don't know if you've seen this as well. There are actually some conservatives, not defending conservatives here, just giving mm. the facts, that are saying <laughs> this, that this legislation is an attack on our quote unquote civil liberties, which it is. But I think that there are some like, multi classed multi-powered mobilizations around Mm -hmm. that legislation just one thing i want to say about djokovic as well and it comes back to i think a deserving and undeserving migrant the way people spoke about him being detained and not being able to compete was so interesting on the one hand you've got anti-vaxxers saying that it's like a it's it, it obviously using their general kind of narrative of like it's it's an obstruction to our freedoms blah 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 and then you have the people that are like this is a man that has worked his whole life he's worked his whole life he does not deserve to be do you know what i mean it's so interesting like we've got these different cohorts of, of reactionaries that <laughs> come to his defense for just reasons that we just can't even get into
2: but these people understand that this is a process that racialized people go through but they choose to class them or categorize them differently so it's not the fact that they they don't know people are quite aware these things are happening right but they choose to class this group of person this person differently than that one and for the multitudes of reasons that we've already discussed.
1: We'd love a provocation. We'd have a provocation <laughs> on the show. And I guess just to contextualize where we are, so today's day is it's the nineteenth of January. It's Prime Minister's questions and Boris Johnson, it seems like he's coming to the end. Maybe coming to the end of the road in terms of quote happen. unquote party gate. I hate calling it party gate. Do you know why? Because like I feel like it desensitizes the the situ as in like it makes the situation seem very anecdotal and actually like it's fucking piss take but yeah a couple of things that happen in in terms of um the increased bordering and fortification of britain is that Pretty patel continues to go hard on rhetoric around anti-refugee anti-asylum anti-migrant um pol- rhetoric yeah and policy and today, this week, what has she said to you? That she's going to... Bringing the
2: Navy to have sound cannons, but... What... What's
1: that? Bringing the Navy to what? S- to
2: use sound cannons to repel those little boats that are coming over. What sound
1: energy. cannon? So
2: use sonic blasts. It's like something you say, like a, like a comic, like a cartoon. It's, it's insane.
1: What the hell is wrong no, with But her? the thing is, it
2: has been it has been used on people already around the world. It's been used... I can't remember what it was used. But it's been used on, on populations already to kind of control people. But the issue is... I guess, and I guess something that hasn't been resolved in the British kind of uh, British British kind of zeitgeist is the kind of competing visions of Britain. We have a a global Britain that's supposed to be outward looking. We have one that's inward looking, and we also have a a significant um, population, part of our population, that's all about multiculturalism and and jettisoning the kind of colonial imperial past. So. Which version of Britain are people talking
1: about? T, you're exactly right. And Ben, we'd love to get your thoughts on this because we come back to this all the time on the show. Thinking about thinking about hostile environment, thinking about um, basically far-right government we have, thinking about things like Brexit, all these different visions that they perpetuate and project, but the actualities of it, if we're just talking about how the rich people get served in Canary Wharf, you've told everyone to go you told everyone to go and they've loads of them are gone like the practicalities of this these different things that they're pushing forward with and or not and the process of being multi-ethnic and multi-racial which is what britain's always been how is this going to play out how are they do they square this mm-hmm.
0: yeah totally i mean this fantasy of like an island nation like, so the idea of the navy is really interesting this fantasy of a an island nation with a sea around that can be kind of defended Whereas in the global networked world that we live in, we you know, and the, and the pandemic and the supply chain disruption caused by Brexit have really illustrated this. We're completely dependent on on constant uh, flows inwards and outwards. I can't
1: get my cat's cat food. I can't get my cat's cat. Food. <laughs> is that is actually a fact. That's a fact. I can't get Elton's cat food.
0: Yeah. So this this idea of kind of that we can somehow stand separate um, and and. Defend the borders it, it's just a fantasy and i suppose like you know psychosocially this idea of take back control of the idea of having control in the globalized world is it, is it, just uh, you know, it's literally insane and it draws on the kind of we were talking earlier about like dispossession the idea of uh, of the empire the kind of nostalgia for the empire that we've just failed to to let go of um it's this kind of island nation with its imperial great grandeur so
2: I guess the question is, how did ever how did other empires deal with this idea of dispossession? These empires start crumbling at the start of the 20th centuries.
0: Well, I suppose the difference between uh, the the empires that survived, the French, Dutch, British, mm-hmm. other empires that survived well into the twentieth century, versus something like the Habsburg Empire, is is the is the this relates to what I was saying before about the. Uh, enemy aliens and friendly races mm-hmm. and so on is this uh, synchronization of racial nationalism with the imperial projects um is like is a feature of, of of british imperialism in a way that it wasn't necessarily of the austro-hungarian and so that you know we've just i don't know if there have been any of the other european global colonial powers that have really had a proper reckoning with their histories i mean, think there's been struggles in all of those countries to kind of create some kind of some kind of reckoning um with, with, the, with those histories but it's in it's at best incomplete in, mm-hmm. in all of them i think
1: ben thank you so much for joining us on the show today it's been so great um Thanks, Ben. Thank, oh, thank you so you. much yeah, thank you so much and listeners we'll be back again next week see you later bye Bye-bye. thank you for listening to surviving society with chantelle and tiso you can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
2: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.